We, we had Dan Ariely last week. We got Dan Pink this week, Dan Heath next week. So we, we're trying to get all the Dans in one hit. That's good. Well, I was, I've always wanted to do a, a conference competing with Ted called Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. <laughs> Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Daniel Pink. Dan Pink. So, we did his book, Drive. It's probably one of our first 10 episodes, probably. And it's a phenomenal book about motivation uh, and autonomy, mastery, purpose. And then we did uh, another book called To Sell as Human. And he's got a brand new one coming out when. So, we talked a lot about his brand new book that we haven't read yet. Mate, he's a bit of a juggernaut. Um, I, oh. Absolute top dude. I love speaking to him. We, yeah, we covered everything or oh, a lot of stuff in his first book and his second yep. book yep. and then also his new book which is coming out which looks super interesting and we're definitely going to do it yeah the scientific secrets of perfect timing mm. uh so it sounds awesome and he gave heaps and heaps of awesome stuff i mean he's an absolute fucking legend yeah get in the pink yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess first of all, so we, we did Drive uh, probably over 12 months ago, actually. It was one of the very first books we did, and we absolutely loved it. Um, Thank you. Are we sort of still trending towards you know more autonomy, more mastery, more purpose? Are people realizing this, or are most managers still stuck in the carrot and the stick? Well, I mean, I think the answer to that question is a definitive yes. Uh, I think that's in some cases, we're moving <laughs> toward it, and in other cases, we're still stuck in the future. I do think that over the last five or six years, there is a, is a growing, albeit slow, recognition that the way that people do their best work, particularly on creative, complex tasks, is to get away from controlling motivators like if-then rewards and give people a measure of autonomy. Uh, so I think the trajectory is positive. The rate is not super fast. Mm. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about motivation and and how it's evolved from um as you say in the book from 2.0 to 3.0 sure i mean one of the things that's important to understand about motivation is that it's complex there's a lot of nuance in it um so if you think about what really motivates people uh it's it's many things so we're motivated by biological drives there's no question about that we eat when we're hungry drink when we're thirsty so to say that's not part of what humans are is ridiculous but also to say that's all that humans are is equally ridiculous. So we also have another drive, uh, and we do respond uh, often robustly and, and sometimes in predictable ways to carrot and stick motivators, particularly what I like to call these if-then motivators. If you do this, then you get that. And the science tells us very clearly that if-then motivators are extremely effective for simple mechanical tasks with short time horizons. They work really well. And again, here's where the nuance comes in. It's not that human beings don't like rewards. It's the exact opposite. We love rewards. And they get our attention. But they get our attention in this very kind of narrow, focused way. That's effective if you know exactly what you need to do. If you're following an algorithm, you can see the finish line. Um, however, it's less effective if you are doing things that require more creativity, more conceptual thinking, where you want to have a broadened focus. And for that other kinds of task, so, so again, just going back to your central question, um, uh, Adams, I'm yeah. going to pluralize <laughs> you guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going, back to your central, going back to your central question, are human beings motivated by carrots and sticks? 
Absolutely. Is that all they're motivated by? Absolutely not. And because human beings are also motivated by other things. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to get better. We want to have control over our own lives. We want to know why we're doing things. And it turns out that those kinds of motivators are the most potent motivators for the kinds of things that people in Australia, in the States, are typically doing, which require more creativity, more conceptual thinking, and, and longer time horizons. And I think what's gone on, going back to your first question, is that a lot of companies, you know, these carrot and stick motivators, these if-then rewards, are very good for certain kinds of work. They're, they're great for 19th century work. They're decent for 20th century work. They're just not that great for most, not all, you know, most 21st century work. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, in terms of, I guess, purpose, for, for us, we're sort of both relatively new to the workplace, you know, we're recent graduates, we're doing the, you know, we're starting at the bottom of the ladder, essentially, uh, where the work is more 20th century work, probably than 21st century high-level conceptual work. Is it, uh, for me, I've got a very low sense of purpose. How can someone, um, I, I guess, uh, foster that sense of, of purpose in their work? Yeah, that's a great question at the individual level. And, and, and I have to say, this is one area where I, I felt like in the book Drive, I didn't get it quite right. And, and I, I'm sort of changed my thinking a little bit, and maybe it'll be helpful on this. Mm-hmm. So when we think about purpose, my view now is that purpose is really two things. There are two, or at least there are two kinds of purpose. Mm-hmm. And the way that I look at it is this. Uh, it, it, this is not necessarily the best way, but it's the best way that I've come up with right now. You can think of purpose with a capital P, right? Big capital P purpose. And that is the sort of purpose that I wrote about in the book. Are you putting shoes on people who don't have shoes? Are you feeding the hungry? Are you tackling the, the climate crisis? Are you helping your country move away from dependence on fossil fuels? Um, and that's really important, and the evidence is clear that that's a big motivator. The trouble is, as the Adams are saying, is that in many jobs, it's very hard to access that. And it's very certainly very hard to access that every single day. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a second kind of purpose out there, which you can think of as small p purpose. And that's simply not am I making a difference, but am I making a contribution? If I didn't mm-hmm. show up today, would anybody care? If I didn't show up today, would this report not go out? If I didn't show up today, would this customer be disappointed? And that ends up being actually really important as well. Um, And there's some very interesting research. It's not in the book. It it only came out maybe two years ago um, that I love. Uh, It's a study of cafeterias uh, out of Harvard Business School, study of cafeterias. And what they found, to just cut to the chase, is that when, you know, typically in in a cafeteria, the cooks are in the back. They can't see the customers. But when you rig up an iPad that allows the cooks to see the customers, the mm. quality of the food improves. Oh, awesome. Now, so, so this is not capital P purpose. The people at this cafeteria in Massachusetts in the eastern United States, they're not starving. They're not mm. destitute. Mm. All right. But the fact that, you know, it's so interesting when the cooks say, wait a second, someone's going to eat that cheese omelet. Yeah. I'm going to do a little bit better. That is small p purpose, am I making a contribution? And so for people who are stuck in jobs that where capital P purpose is a big reach, mm. look for those instances of small p purpose. Mm, awesome. That's phenomenal. And for the, some of the organizations that are out there that are still you know, operating in the old school, how do you move like a whole organization from the, the old version of uh, motivation and purpose to you know, apply some of these principles you talk about in, in drive at the organizational level? 
it's very hard to move a whole organization. Mm. Um, so if you look at, uh, so if, you know, if, you, if you're an individual in, a, in an organization, whether you're at the top or whether you're at the bottom, and you ask yourself, can I change my whole organization? The answer, even if you're the CEO, yeah. is generally no. Mm. Uh, it's really hard to do that. But it's the wrong question to ask. Uh, the real question to ask is, can I do one small thing in my own domain to make things a little bit better? And the answer to that question is invariably yes. And that's how a lot of the really cool uh, innovations inside the workplace have happened. It wasn't some kind of genius bit of strategy. It yeah. was one person inside, often not asking permission, saying, hey, I'm going to try this thing. Mm. If it fails, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. If it works, I'll start ready to work. <laughs> and I really, but I really think that that is, I think that that is, you know, like we have these, you know, you go to business school and there are these theories of organizational change. Um, some, you know, and so there's truth to these various broad theories of how organizations change and transform. But, you know, my experience, my sort of lived experience, and also what I think is the ground truth of real organizational life is that many of these changes happen, you know, small, uh, unplanned in this very organic way, and then gradually grow up. Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. <clears throat> I love it. So that was... Um... I mean, that's, that's true. That's true for things like, uh, you know, the... The, the 10% time or the 20% time yeah. or the ship it days that Atlassian is doing yeah. or the genius hours that people are doing. There wasn't, it, it's typically one person trying something and when it works, she tells somebody else and then that person does it. And then all of a sudden this thing that used to be on kind of the edge ends up migrating more to the center. Mm. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, so that was Drive, which we did, as I said, over a year ago. We also just recently did To Sell as Human. you got so many phenomenal books that we're going to try and shoehorn into one, one short convo. But uh, can you give us a – probably you'll probably do a better job than we can of convincing people that everyone's in sales, even though their, their title might be uh, not salesperson of this, but uh, everyone's in non-sales selling. What does that involve? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if, you, if, if people actually literally record what they do all day, they will find that a huge portion of it is something like sales. That is, what they are doing is they are trying to convince somebody to give up something they own for something that you own. All right, it's 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 in some levels transactional. So it's a weird kind of transaction in that it is not nominated. Money's not changing hands. Mm-hmm. So it's so the currency isn't you know, Australian dollars or U.S. dollars or yen or you know euros. Uh, the currency is time, attention, effort, mm. energy, zeal, commitment, belief. And I have found if you actually have people look at the truth of how they spend their time, they're often surprised how much time they spend in selling, influencing, persuading, convincing. And the other thing that I found is that if you ask people simply the question, how much is your success at work? How much does your success at work hinge on your ability to do this well? People always say, oh, my God, it's incredibly important. And I think what's weird about it is, is that those kinds of words, selling, convincing, influencing, are, you know, in most people, it's not even in their job descriptions. And yet the truth of what they do every day is that. Mm. Yeah. It kind of um, goes back to the previous question it sounds like if you know if you want to move a company culture it might be learning sales skills to get you know the whole company to move in, in the new direction 
Absolutely right. Absolutely right. That's a, it's a, it's an influence. It's a, it's an influence job. Mm. And, um, you know, and it's an influence job that is, I mean, you know, sometimes these kinds of big changes can happen top down, but not that, that often. I mean, they, they more often they're bottom up more often. Actually, it's sort of an interesting, uh, brew is that they are started from ground up and either tolerated endorsed or ignored yeah. by the people at the top. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's Cuz the people point. at the top can the people at the top can stamp those things out pretty quickly. Yeah. If I try to do something cool and I'm just an individual contributor without much formal authority, the people at the top, at the top can suffocate my idea pretty quickly if they want. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's awesome. So there was uh, in the in the book there was achievement, so the ABCs of of selling. Um Maybe could we talk a little bit about attunement, maybe, you know, and, and try and unpack that a little bit more for, for the listeners. Yeah. yeah, so attunement is is simply perspective taking. Um, taking the taking the other person's perspective. Now the reason it's important is that, you know, inside of an organization or even in the marketplace, we have very little power to force people to do things. Uh, bosses, even though they have some formal authority, it's very hard for them to force people to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, you know, if you're, excuse me, if you're trying to deal with your colleagues, you can't coerce them into doing things. Yeah. Mm. And even in the marketplace, when customers, you know, in, in, in pure selling, when customers have lots of information, lots of choices, all kinds of ways to talk back, you don't have a lot of coercive power. So in that kind of landscape, you need what is almost like the, the flip of coercive power, which is, can I get out of my own head and see things from someone else's point of view and use that to find common ground. This is, I think it's a central ability in any kind of influence and most human beings are not very good at it. Mm. Yeah, and another thing you talk about in the book is like our ability to listen. It's another thing we don't really get taught at school. And you talk about the improv as, as a you know good way of learning these new types of skills. Are you doing improv still, Dan? No, I've never actually done, you know, been part of an improv troupe. Mm. Um, I've, I've often admired improv from the safety of the audience, but I, <laughs> I, I realize, I, I recognize that the skills that improv teaches are profoundly important. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and, and I think it's actually a really powerful analogy because if you think about sales, like for a long time, you know, sales was very, very scripted. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally scripted. Mm. And, and now, you know, when when buyers have all this information and all these choices and this new kind of power, it's hard. You can't just read a script. Uh, what you have to be able to do, you have to have more um, uh, flexibility and nuance and responsiveness yeah. in how you deal with customers and prospects. Mm. And I do think that the core principles of improv are really useful when it comes to influence and selling things like. You know, I mean, I, it, for me, it was personally transformative. Hearing offers, oh, right? Yeah. When somebody mm-hmm. responds, somewhere in there often is an offer, even though it doesn't say, "I'm going to offer you this." Yeah. So hearing offers, um, awesome. and also the other part is how important it is to make the other side look good. Hmm. And you, you know, I, I think that a lot of people are past this conceptually, but they don't do a good job of it on the ground. Which is, you know, that that most transactions are not purely zero sum. That they're positive some, and there's a lot to be said for asking yourself not only what do I want, but how can I make the atoms look good? How can <laughs> yeah. I make my That's boss right. look good? How can I help that person get what he or she wants? And 
getting beyond this zero sum thing. There, there's some transactions and encounters that are zero sum, but I really am convinced that those are the minority. Yeah, and exactly. that most of these encounters and transactions that we have in our lives are positive sum. Mm. And if you go into them thinking they're zero sum, you're going to be limiting a lot mm. of your uh, the upside for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, after reading your book, I actually did improv, so I'm doing a you know my oh, cool. second second lot of classes at the moment. It's still one. And of, how, how is it? I absolutely love it. It's one. It is one of the best things I've ever done, and I've never been oh, forced cool. to try and listen. And it's it's so bloody hard to you know sit there and listen to what the actual person's saying and then respond in in real time and just being comfortable with the uncertainty. And I think the other thing is, which is you talk about in books as well, is getting into say the right brain. So. Personally, I'm an engineer, so I live all my day in, in kind of the left brain, and then getting out of that and into the right brain, it's kind of like a therapeutic as well. So there's, you know, there's <laughs> benefits upon benefits doing improv. I love it. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's phenomenal. So, um, Dan, you've got a new podcast out as well, one three twenty. Um, one yes, author, sir. three questions, twenty minutes. We might um sort of steal that format or maybe borrow that format <laughs> in terms of you've got a, a brand new book out that um, we haven't read yet. So when the scientific, uh, sorry, I've lost the, the subtitle there, the scientific secrets of perfect timing. Uh, so I guess the first question is uh, what's the big idea? Oh, okay. We'll play this. I'm, I'm game for this. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, 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 the big idea is that in our lives, we make all kinds of when decisions. When should I quit a job? When in the day should I work out? When in the day should I do certain kinds of work or other kinds of work? When should I get married? When should I abandon a project that's not working? When should I start a new uh, exercise regimen? And we tend to make those decisions in a haphazard way because we think that timing is an art. Well, I am convinced now after two years of research that timing is actually a science, Mm -hmm. that if you look across a very, very wide domain of research, literally dozens of disciplines, you have scientists across these disciplines asking a lot of these questions about timing. And if you go, if you do the, the nasty work of going in and looking at all this stuff, uh, you can begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to make systematically better when decisions. And what I've found is that these, uh, that the questions that, that when is in many, many cases as important as what, who, and how. Phenomenal. So does this, is there a, a science to, uh, timing that applies to all of those different scenarios that you, you just laid out, or is it sort of different case by case? It's a little bit different. So, what, so what you can do is, so you can think about like on, in a given day, there's a hidden pattern of the day that's that is remarkably consistent across cultures um, that shows, you know, we have periods where we're at our peak, periods of a trough, and periods of a rebound. And there is some very good evidence showing that you're better off uh, sorting your 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 analytic work into your peak period, which for most people is the morning, uh, doing your more mundane stuff during this trough in the afternoon, and then doing the more creative uh, stuff during the during during the rebound. Uh, there's some great material, for instance, on breaks. Uh, the science of breaks is actually stunning in many ways. If you remember 15 years ago, 10 you know about 15 years ago people who would go without sleep who would pull all-nighters who would come Mm. in and say i just got two hours of sleep last night Mm. were considered inside of organizations heroes (laughs) the rest of us the rest of us were lazy idiots yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly we were lazy slackers who were sleeping eight hours a night and what happened what's happened in the last 15 years is that the science of sleep has progressed so we now say wait a second that person who's getting two hours of sleep is not some kind of a hero. In fact, he's, some, he's an idiot. 
Mm. He's he's actually hurting his performance. He might be hurting my performance. Mm. And so I think the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago, that we need to be taking more breaks and most important in, in, in a day. And, and the most important thing is that we need to think of, you know, we have this kind of very puritanical view of work, certainly in the United States, other Anglo-Saxon countries, you know, where you have to be focused and heads down all the time and unrelenting. And um, that's just wrong. It's not, it's not wrong in a moral sense. It's just like every piece of performance literature says, don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have to start doing is thinking of breaks not as a deviation from performance, not as a betrayal of performance, but as a fundamental part of our performance. Uh, and, you know, athletes do this, but the rest of us yeah. need to do that as well. And there's some good, there's some interesting stuff on, on, you know, what sorts of breaks that we should be taking. There's also in this book when material on, you know, why do beginnings matter? Why do midpoints matter? Why do endings matter? Mm-hmm. How do groups synchronize in time? So it's time, timing in many, many dimensions. A common form of break I see at work is, you know, everyone will stay at their desk all day and then they eat their lunch at their desk and it's all, almost like they they feel bad for leaving the desk because it, you know, might, might be how they look to their bosses or something like that. So what kind of breaks should they be taking, you know, for lunchtime or smoko or anything like that? Uh, you're, you're totally right. I mean, there's, there's actually some pretty good evidence that taking a lunch break actually enhances your subsequent productivity and creativity. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, ever so slowly, there's some companies that are now saying, okay, you got to take a lunch break. Mm. Um, so, but what, but what we know about breaks is actually the science of breaks actually gives us a lot of clues about how to do things effectively. So let me, let me go over them. Number one, um, social breaks in general are better than solo breaks. Mm-hmm. So taking a break with other people uh, now, I, I, as an introvert, I'm not sure I love that conclusion, but that's what <laughs> that's what it says. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's also some very powerful research showing that where possible, go outside for your break, that the natural environment is a powerful restorative. And we don't. And in, even if you can't go outside, like go to a window, look outside um, ends up being really, really powerful. Um, there's again, I, I think this this evidence here is incontrovertible, is that you're better off taking a moving break than a stationary break. So go for a walk uh, rather than than sit around. Uh, there's again, and I think this is super important in a world of mobile phones, is that fully detached beats semi detached, that if you really want to break, you have to fully detach from your work. It's not. A, and, and that means, you know, if you're if you're going to go out with somebody for a cup of coffee, don't as hard as it is, you know, don't talk about work. Talk mm-hmm. about something else. Awesome. Um, certainly don't bring your phone and check your phone during your break. Mm-hmm. And so so these kinds of design principles, you know, it should be social rather than solo. It should be moving rather than stationary. Uh, it should be outside, if possible, rather than inside. It should be fully detached rather than semi detached. You know, give us a way to. Um, take better breaks. But the, the key here, the, the key hurdle we have to surmount is we have to start thinking of breaks as part of the performance, mm-hmm. not as a not as a deviation from it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, nice. I think I, I heard you talking in other podcasts um, previously about naps and stuff as well and uh, polyphasic sleeping. Um, and you were just, I think when at the time I heard you were just looking into it. What, what sort of conclusions did you come to around naps? Yeah, so so naps are um, so the, so the research on naps shows that naps are pretty helpful for us. Um, uh, but it, it, what what surprised me and, and changed my behavior was that you don't need very much time at a nap. 
mm-hmm. that a, that a, a nap of tw- tw- ten to twenty minutes is actually really really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you get past twenty minutes or so, twenty five minutes or so, you start to accumulate what's called sleep inertia. That's the groggy feeling that a lot of us have when we first wake up. But uh, but but short naps uh, are actually quite effective. And 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 here it's interesting. I find that a lot of companies, particularly startup companies, are much more amenable to naps than they are to lunch. So they're mm-hmm. building in you know nap pods and those kinds of things for their employees because mm-hmm. you know, they're legitimizing napping. Um, oh, I've all I, you know my view is that napping and it's actually napping is actually easier than most people realize. Yeah, um, to me, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of meditation. That is, when you first start trying to meditate, I'm not a meditator, but when you first start trying to meditate, it's very difficult because your mind is racing all over the place. It's bouncing from one thing to another. And I think that's true when people first who aren't nappers try to nap, but eventually you get better at it. And, you know, if you can snooze for 15 minutes, you're going to feel better when you get up. Oh, it's huge. I know for me, if I just go and try and take a nap, I just lie there and think for 15 minutes and get up and there's, you know, it's bloody hard to, to switch off. And you got to try again. And that's yeah. what, it, that, you know, that, that's true for a lot of people with meditating. When I, when I tried meditating, you know, um, oh, so, I, you know, sitting in silence, I start thinking about, okay, what do I have to do? Uh, where are my keys? Uh, which editor is mad at me this week? And, <laughs> and, but eventually you can train your mind to bring it back to that just being present. And so, so meditation is a skill. It's a, yeah. it's a skill that we can develop. And I think that napping is akin to that. Mm. Yeah, nice. We've deviated from the, the 1320 a little bit. We'll, we'll bring it back to the, the second question, which I think we've sort of touched on. But uh, so why should we care about the, uh, you know, this science of perfect timing? Oh, so on, on one level, if you look at, say, the timing in the course of an individual day, time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on cognitive tasks. Okay, mm. so think about that. So it's not, so it's a t- so timing isn't everything well, in that case, but it's a big thing, <laughs> yeah. and, you know? And so that's, you know, so that's why we should care. Yeah. And, and what we should care is that the science tells us overwhelmingly that for a long time, we have taken these questions of when, and they've, we, we've, we've sat them at the kids' table. At the grown-ups' mm-hmm. table, we've got who and how and what. Those are serious questions. Yeah. And we say, oh, when is that guy? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and I think that the science, the science tells us very clearly that when belongs at that table, that these yeah. questions of when are material. Uh, you see this in every domain of life. You see it in healthcare and what happens in hospitals. You see it in schools and what happens in education. You see it in things like earnings calls in 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 public companies, you see it in the verdicts that juries render. You see it in the verdicts that judges render. You see it mm. in um, athletic performance. That it is a you know it's again it's not I don't I don't want to say it's more important than how or what or who, but it's as important and yeah. it needs to be taken seriously. So that's why we should care. Yeah, totally. It's something that's never I've never heard this you know philosophy of, of choosing when to do things. So. It's awesome. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, Thanks. The third one, and you've also also touched on, is what should we what should we do about it? Oh, there are all kinds. I mean, there's so much stuff that you can do about it. Let me just give you a few things. Number one is that we're so we're talking about breaks. Uh, one of the things that I've started doing is making a break list. Okay, so twice a day, write down when I'm going to take a break. And uh, you know, what's crazy to me is that you know we like if we have meetings scheduled, we always show up. 
Mm-hmm. Even though they're generally a waste of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and we should be taking breaks and arguably are more important than meetings. But we schedule our meetings and we don't schedule our breaks. So schedule mm-hmm. two breaks every day. Awesome. I've tried to do that. I've tried to do that myself. That's one thing that you can do. Um, the second thing that you can do is, I mean, there's so many different things that you can do. The second thing that you can do is that if you want to start some kind of behavior change of your own. Yeah. So let's say you want to start a new diet or a new exercise regimen or a new productivity uh, plan. Uh, you're better off uh, taking advantage of what's called the fresh start effect. And what that says is if you want to start something new, do it on the first of the month rather than on the sixth of the month. Mm-hmm. Do it on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. Do it the day after a federal holiday than the day before a federal holiday. Do it the day after your birthday rather than two days before your birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to be more likely to start. You're going to be more likely to continue the continue the behavior. Uh, um, and then, uh, the other thing, I mean, I hate to be glib here, but if you have a choice, so third thing I would recommend is that if you have a choice, do not go into a hospital in the afternoon. Uh, what happens in hospitals in the afternoon, especially here in the States is terrifying. What you see in hospitals in the afternoon is uh, a, a dramatic increase in anesthesia errors so that, wow. uh, so that um, there are four times as many anesthesia errors at 3 p.m. as there are at 9 a.m. You see um, incredible declines in hand washing among healthcare professionals in the afternoons versus the morning. Doctors doing colonoscopies find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning what? exams. They're more, yeah, it's big time. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's big, it's, that's big it's, stuff. It's, and, and, and what's interesting about this research is a lot of it, it it's really good research in that it's taking gigantic data sets uh, of outcomes from hospitals. So it's not just doing an experiment where we treat this ward this way and this ward the other way. We're talking about the experiences of, of literally, in, in some of these cases, more than 10,000 hospitals. Mm. Um, and it's showing that, that the a- afternoons are in many ways the Bermuda Triangles of our day. Wow. That's, okay, I'll try, and get, I'll try and get sick in the morning next time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if, you can, if you can avoid it. Obviously, you, know, you don't always have discretion, but, but believe me, believe yeah. me. Um, um, you know, my daughter, uh, one of my daughters had to have her, during a break from university, had to have her wisdom teeth taken out. And, yeah. and it requires general anesthesia. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, you're going in the first <laughs> one in the morning. You're not yeah. doing this in the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. That's phenomenal. Um, we were admiring before your uh, impressive bookshelf behind you. Um, what are some of your favorite books or books that have been uh, highly influential on your your life or, or career? Oh, so many. You know, I just it's it's hard to single out. You know, just one. I I, I find that I read like most people do in that I'll read a number of different books and different. You know, and they sort of pluck things from from each of them. But among the books that have been influential to me have been. Victor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. Mm. Uh, I think that's an essential book. Um, if you, uh, another essential book for me is a book called *Bird by Bird* mm-hmm. by Anne Lamott, which is about writing. Um, that has that helped me a lot. Um, you, uh, it's great. There, yeah, go ahead. Can you expand on 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 what you learned from *Bird* a little bit? Yeah, so *Bird by Bird* is a book by uh, Anne Lamott. It's probably about twenty-five years old now. This book, and it's a book about writing. She's a writer, and it's a book about writing. And 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 it it it, it if you read it and you're a writer, you realize that you're not in, as insane as you thought. Yeah, you know that that one of the keys to writing is is really is crappy first drafts, mm-hmm. and just like that's part of the process. But the title comes the the title, and I and I use the the title all the time. 
The title comes from a story she tells about her brother. Her brother, when he was in elementary school, uh, I think it was element, yeah, elementary school, uh, had to write a report, a class or school report on birds. And of course, being, you know, whatever, an 11 year old, he procrastinated and procrastinated and procrastinated. He had three weeks to do it. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And then suddenly, the night before it's due, he realizes he has to write this report about birds. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't. And he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. And and his father gives him this advice. He says, "Okay, guy, here's what you do. Just take it bird by bird." Yeah. And awesome. one and 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 um and I say that to myself sometimes yeah. when I'm frustrated. Bird by bird, bird mm-hmm. by bird. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, nice. It's, it's sitting on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, so I have to. Have to yeah, get, yeah. Get it's it's actually really, it's actually a really funny book. I, I, I don't, I haven't read it in a while, so I'm not sure how well it holds. I think it holds up pretty well for uh, given its age, hmm. but it's it's very funny and 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 I think one of the interesting things about that, and you know, uh, you know, one of the things that any writer can hope for is this is a book I read 20 years ago, and I still think about it, and that's awesome. Yeah, that's if you're huge. a writer. Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. So I guess as we sort of wrap up, where can where can people find you and your stuff, your new book, your new podcast? So uh, you can just go to the best, easiest thing would be to go to my website, which is www.danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. And there's all kinds of there's all all kinds of free resources there, and then links to books and podcasts and all that kind of groovy stuff. There we go, Dan Pink. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. That was unreal. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Adams. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you we've read some bloody good books this season so far and you can win them all yep so we've got a a prize so there's three ways you can enter this and it is absolute bonanza yeah it is a bonanza you know (laughs) seven habits highly effective people if you can grow rich start with why to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win so you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Very short, two minutes. Yep, and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes. The The second one is leave a review for us. Yep, we'll find that. And the third way is to just buy a book. Yep. Have a read, send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com. And yeah, that's it. you can enter three times, three yep, chances three to times. win. Each time, probably maximum three minutes time investment. Yep. And you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use yourself or give us gifts yeah good shit 